Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the War Room Podcast. I'm Genevieve Lester, the Desario Chair of Strategic and Theater Intelligence at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. Today's podcast is part of a six-part series on intelligence. The series approaches the topic from a variety of angles through a series of interviews with some of the field's leading scholars and practitioners. For a broad overview of several of these themes, be sure to check out the introductory podcast in the series, which I recorded with Dr. Jacqueline Witt, the War Room podcast editor. In this, the final podcast of the series, I sit down with former Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, to discuss major themes in intelligence that have been drawn from his 50 years in intelligence service. Welcome, Director Clapper, to the U.S. Army War College and Intelligence Speaking Series. Could you please tell us, we focus a lot on strategic thinkers because we're a senior service college. Could you talk a little bit about strategic intelligence and its various definitions? Well, uh, first, thanks for having me. It's great to, great to be, be here at uh, the Army War College. Um, strategic intelligence is actually, uh, for me, a difficult uh, term to uh, define because it has so many uh, meanings and it is very uh, situational or scenario dependent. So is strategic intelligence the manner in which it was collected? Is it the substantive content of the intelligence? Is it uh, to whom the intelligence is being conveyed? All of that can have a, a bearing on whether or not that's, quote, air quotes, uh, strategic uh, intelligence or not. So a piece of what would normally people would consider tactical intelligence. Uh, I found myself uh, in the last administration uh, briefing President Obama on something that seemed to me to be quite tactical, yet was very important for him to know. So uh, after struggling with the term, I'm, I'm not sure it has uh, a whole lot of meaning. It's uh, somewhat like pornography. Uh, you know it when you see it. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, I'd just like to, to talk a little bit. So we talk, you mentioned the, com the complexities of the concept of strategic intelligence. So I'd like to dig into the hindrances of good intelligence. So we talk about timeliness and current intelligence and its domination, one could argue, over forecasting and long-term intelligence. Could you speak to that and to other issues you've seen well, in 50 years a, of intelligence? Well, a classic observation about uh, intelligence in general, as long as I was in it for 50-plus years, um, and the accusation, which is justified to some extent, that the intelligence uh, community t typically focuses too much on the here and now and urgent as opposed to the more distant, important future. And to a certain extent, that's, uh, that's true. Uh, my observation has been that <clears throat> most uh, the longest strategic horizon that any uh, presidential administration has is a maximum of eight years and uh, it starts on inauguration day and each day ticks off another day and that strategic horizon gets ever shorter and the, uh, the administrations I've observed and been a part of <clears throat> uh, invariably get consumed with the inbox and whatever the crisis of the day is at some sacrifice for uh, more distant long term and 
one difficulty there is the farther out you go, the harder it is to forecast things. Uh, I've often uh, brought up the, the old intelligence saw about understanding the differences between mysteries and secrets. Secrets are knowable facts. Mysteries are not. And I think too often the intelligence community is held to the same standard for divining both. And that contributes to this issue of uh, too much focus on the here and now, not enough focus on, on the future. But it, it is, uh, you know, it's a standard uh, cliche uh, accusation, and uh, uh, it's true now as it was when I first got in the business 50 years ago. Can you think of a way to change this focus on the current intelligence, or is this an immutable characteristic? I don't think you can change it, uh, because this is not intelligence as a self-licking ice cream cone. It, it, it's not doing this all by itself. Intelligence responds to the demands and requirements of policymakers or, um, you know, translate that to a military context, to uh, commanders. And if the commanders are interested in the here and now, that's what they want every day at the morning brief or whatever, by whatever means intelligence is conveyed to them, well, that drives the intelligence machine. Now, if, they, if they're less interested in that and are interested in more long-term and ask consistent questions about the long-term, that's what they'll get. But this is not intelligence doing this all by itself. Thank you. Uh, moving on from the broader context of, of, of strategic intelligence, you've had a very lengthy career. Can you, you, and you've had a variety of experiences, could you talk perhaps about a couple of the experiences that are most important to you in terms of your career and your way of looking at intelligence? Well, for uh, this group uh, at the Army War College, um, I think one thing I would cite is uh, my uh, two years as the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Forces Korea. Um, in the mid-80s, and uh, what a profound experience that was for me. And looking back on my uh, uh, military service, I'd have to cite uh, that assignment as a J-2 in Korea as uh, w one of the two best and most rewarding assignments I ever had, although I certainly didn't think it was going to be that way uh, <clears throat> when I first learned I was going to go to Korea. Uh, Learned a lot about a business I thought I was an expert in. Um, learned a lot about Army stuff, uh, uh, you know, tactical intelligence, if you will. Uh, spent a lot of time tromping up down the DMZ. And uh, uh, learned a lot about the first, uh, I think, indelible lesson I learned about uh, truth to power. And uh, what occasioned this was uh, the commander I worked for, uh, General Bill Livesey, who uh, was kind of a latter-day George Patton, I think. Uh, my first courtesy call with him I had almost the day I got there, or day after. And he made it clear to me that he expected uh, 48 hours of unambiguous warning of a North Korean invasion of uh, the Republic of Korea. And I kind of gulped with, at that. I struggled with it for a few months, finally came to the conclusion that I could never give him 48 hours of unambiguous warning. And I define unambiguous warning as, uh, my, as information or intelligence that I could give to the commander that would compel him to take some irrevocable action. 
activate minefields, blow up bridges, and most importantly, which had huge political implications in the Republic of Korea, still does, would be to send a dependence home. And I became convinced there was nothing I could provide him that would be so unambiguous and so unequivocal and would have such certitude that would induce him to do something like that. <clears throat> and so I came to see him one day, hat in hand, said, General Lizzie, uh, sir, I can't, uh, I can't give you what you asked for. And here's why. I said, the first unambiguous warning you're going to get where you know the North Koreans are attacking for real is when the artillery rounds start falling on Seoul. He didn't like that, but he did accept it. And the object lesson here, both for intelligence officers, is the importance of telling truth to power no matter how difficult it may be, and for a commander, in this case, to accept that as just a limitation of intelligence. Intelligence, as much as people might like it to be or expect it to be, uh, is not clairvoyant. So you had mentioned a second experience you'd had in Southeast Asia that would also really affected your career. Could you speak to that? Well, I'd, uh, two, I had two tours. That was my war, Southeast Asia. <clears throat> I went to Vietnam early, 1965 and 66. Absolutely hated it. Uh, hated the war. It was the most uh, miserable year of my life, both personally and professionally. And uh, I was very, very bitter about it. And uh, after I left, my intent was to go back to Texas, where I'd left my wife in San Antonio, finish up my master's degree, which I was working on at night, and go to the National Security Agency as a GS-11 or 12 and do cryptograms the rest of my life. And uh, somehow I was uh, plucked out of anonymity and uh, was mentored by uh, a succession of a couple uh, general officers that uh, kept me in the Air Force. And, you know, sort of the rest is history, I guess. The second tour, I went back in 1970, and I was a commander of a 100 airmen detachment that uh, were con was composed of uh, linguists and uh, manual Morse intercept operators, and we flew uh, five missions a day on the back end of uh, these old rickety EC-47s, World War II aircraft, reconfigured for airborne radio direction finding, and the objective was to locate uh, North Vietnamese or Viet Cong transmitters. And I participated in the airborne mission, and then I was a unit commander, and it was tremendously satisfying. And I'll never forget the day I left on the 3rd of June, 1971, and a driver drove me up in a Jeep to the aerial port, uh, go down to Bangkok to uh, was flying these missions out of Thailand, fly home, and I remember the feeling I had, rarely emulated afterwards, of satisfaction I had that I'd really done something with that unit. And it didn't matter what my report card said or if I got a hero medal or not. It just felt uh, like a great feeling of accomplishment. And I had that, that was in 1970-71, and then uh, I served in Korea and as a J-2 there, 85-87, uh, had the same feeling. And that, that was... Uh, that was a rare thing. The last two jobs I had is Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence in the Pentagon for three and a half years, followed from Friday to Monday uh, as the Director of National Intelligence for six and a half years. It was 10 years of 
uh, no fun. Um, uh, just uh, glad to be done with it when it was all over. So you had spoken to, I just wanted to highlight this point for, especially for our students here, um, the importance of the Army to your growth and intelligence and development. Well, the thing that struck me uh, most about uh, particularly experience in Korea was the institutional commitment that the Army makes to uh, military intelligence. <clears throat> just the fact you have an MI Corps, an MI branch, and that uh, the tremendous importance of IPB uh, in intelligence, intelligence preparation of the battlefield, a very logical way of thinking about preparing for combat. It puts a great burden on uh, intelligence uh, for as much granularity and fidelity about, uh, well, you know, the landscape, the topography, the geography of of uh, land battle, which is kind of, you know, fundamentally important. Um, you know, Air Force, you've, you know, you could, you're using hand symbols here, uh, there I was at 10,000 feet uh, sort of thing, my left hand caught on fire. You know, big, big hand over small map. And the Army, uh, in contrast, gets very, very, very tactical, very specific. And I learned a lot of lessons about uh, business that I thought I was expert in. I'd spent, you know, 20 plus years in the intelligence business already by the time I got to, got to Korea. And one of the things that impressed me was the interest that operators, and, and, uh, and in my case, the commander I work for, and his intense interest in intelligence. The J-3, uh, the second year I was there, was uh, a guy named Denny Reimer, who uh, was then a two-star, went on later to be Army Chief of Staff. And when he first got there, he was constantly in my business. Uh, what about this? What about that? Is peppering me with questions all the time, and it's, you know, hey, you know, let me worry. I'm the two. Let me worry about intel. And I, I figured out what he was just genuinely interested in intelligence and needed it. And he, in turn, uh, tutored me a lot about operational things. And it was just a great relationship between the operator, the three, and the intelligence officer, the two which I uh, actually rarely experienced in my own service. Thank you. I'd like to shift focus a little bit back to, back to your later roles, um, because the theme that you've talked about in this discussion, and I know is, is relevant to your book that will be forthcoming, is truth to power. Can you talk about that a little bit, what that means, where that's played a big role in your career? Well, um, doing the book, was, uh, which will be out next month uh, in May, uh, mid-May, um, was uh, a cathartic in, in a way, and also allowed me to be uh, pretty, you know, kind of a little contemplative about um, about my profession. And I do cite some examples, uh, one of which I've talked about the the case in point in Korea, but there were others uh, about uh, the importance of telling truth to power, where you're conveying intelligence information that uh, perhaps uh, the recipient really doesn't want to hear. Uh, I guess the most graphic example, examples of this were <clears throat> when uh, I served as DNI for six and a half years for President Obama. He himself was uh, very good about 
fact, he insisted that I always convey the unvarnished intel facts as we knew them. And when we didn't have complete knowledge what my assessment was, and oh, by the way, it's important to make the distinction. And some of his advisors sometimes, as I experienced them, not very many, but on occasion, um, weren't so happy about uh, the, the bad news that intelligence would often convey. And of course, the reason policymakers uh, take that seriously is because oftentimes Intel's there to tell them their policy, tell them that their policy isn't working, and that isn't uh, necessarily news they want to hear. And so, um, you know, sometimes you risk the phenomenon of, get, of being a messenger that gets shot, but it doesn't. Uh, detract from uh, the importance of always telling truth to power, even if, as happens occasionally, the power doesn't listen to the truth. You've still got to keep telling it. Thank you. Um, we had also discussed a little bit, and we do this, we discuss a lot of historical examples and historical trends when it comes to, to studying here at the Army War College. And you had spoken of the importance of history in, in supporting your career and really clarifying aspects of, of your trajectory. Can you speak about the role of history in, in, in your work, in, in your profession? Well, another great example, I think, at least for me, uh, for this uh, audience, was the importance of history in, uh, in Korea. And I, I hadn't been there too long as a J2, and I was in the office on a Saturday morning. I'd been there maybe three or four months, I guess. And, was having a kind of a bull session with uh, one of my senior civilian analysts. Been there a long time. They said, look, I've uh, memorized all the facts and stats about North Korea, and I've got the order of battle memorized and, and all that, but I'm not sure I really un grasp what the, what's the big picture here? What, what impels North Korean thinking? And he suggested to me that I go to the post library at Yongsan and, and just uh, read up on the official army histories of the war. And I did, particularly the early phases, the, the run-up just before June 25th, 1950, when, which is when North Koreans invaded South Korea with about a nine-division force. And I started reading the histories of uh, how they, the North Koreans fought and I thought I got more insight out of that than poring over intelligence documents. And what, what is it that makes the North Korean military tick? And why is it they have those four forward-deployed corps lined up, butt up against the DMZ? Why all the artillery uh, just south, uh, north of the DMZ? Why the uh, uh, fanatic... Uh, a dedication to going underground. Why two separate uh, submarine fleets on each coast of North Korea? Well, there are explanations for that. And most importantly, from an, an INW, an indications warning standpoint, I, I read that the uh, North Koreans formed up uh, in early June two core level command and control entities just before they invaded. So I <clears throat> viewed that as a very uh, critical indicator. So I just cite that as uh, the importance of uh, history, which you know is open, it's not classified, 
And the insight that, that uh, I felt that gave me in trying to understand uh, the North Korean military and the extent that North Koreans have a, a military doctrine or strategy, uh, and they're not too much different than everybody else where they're consumed with the last war they actually fought. And so it is with North Korea. And so I just cite that uh, as a, uh, for me at least, a uh, prominent example of uh, the importance of history. Does your knowledge of history in this context feed into your perceptions of North Korea today? Oh, absolutely. And, and it certainly uh, changed. I mean, it, I had that basis, that foundation, when I went to North Korea in November 2014 to uh, retrieve two citizens of ours who had been uh, imprisoned in, under hard labor conditions and had some occasion to, to deal with uh, two North Korean uh, senior officials, uh, Minister of State Security, a political four-star, and uh, the head of what was called the what is called the Reconnaissance General Bureau, which is the North Korean version of the of the Soviet uh, or Russian GRU. It's a combination of intelligence and uh, special ops. And uh, I think having had the the history on the peninsula. Um, you can take uh, take the boy out of Korea. You can't take Korea out of the boy. And I, I always, you know, sustained uh, myself or tried to as a as a student of the peninsula. And having had that background, I think was helpful in try in understanding uh, the North Koreans and their current approach to uh, um, you know the dealing with the U.S. and, and the, the, what drives them to have a nuclear capability. May I ask what you think the future, where the future lies in that, in that situation? With respect to North Korea? Yes. Well, I'm not a soothsayer, <clears throat> but uh, I think that the only realistic path ahead here is uh, negotiation. Um, I don't see any other, uh, a, a, a military option, a bloody nose option, a preemptory attack, which I think put, uh, has a huge risk, could be uh, cataclysmic uh, if we're not careful. So the only way ahead here is uh, diplomacy uh, or negotiation with them. And if, in fact, this uh, forthcoming summit, if it ever does actually happen between Kim Jong-un and President Trump, if that happens, I, I thought that was a good idea that he accepted the, the invitation. There's all kinds of pitfalls, and all kinds of things that can go wrong here, but uh, if nothing else, uh, this may afford an opportunity to get a very clear articulation from the North Koreans on what is it they need so that they aren't reliant on nuclear weapons. What is it that would give them sufficient security, a feeling of security, that they don't feel threatened I was blown away when I went to North Korea and sat and talked to these people, and I did not appreciate the depth of the siege mentality and the paranoia that prevails in Pyongyang among the leadership elite. Everywhere they look, they see enemies, most prominently the United States. And when we fly B-1s, B-2s, B-52s, or have all these uh, maritime patrols and deploy aircraft carriers. It makes us feel good. It's reassuring to the allies, notably, of course, Republic of Korea and Japan. But it just amplifies the tremendous 
siege mentality that prevails in North Korea. So back to your book, would you like to talk a little bit more about the major themes of, of the book? I mean, we've talked a little about truth to power, but what more is contained in it? What more lessons can be drawn from it for the future? Well, I talk about uh, you know, why, why do we do intelligence uh, in the first place? Why does any nation state do intelligence? Well, in the end, it's uh, to reduce, you'll never eliminate it, or rarely will you eliminate it uncertainty altogether, but at least reduce uncertainty, cast light on uh, profound decisions that have to be made, often where life is at risk. Reduce uncertainty for a policymaker, whether the policymaker is sitting in the Oval Office, in the White House, or, if I can stretch the metaphor, in an Oval Foxhole. It doesn't matter because the, the objective in both cases, the Alpha to the Omega here, is to reduce uncertainty for the consumer, the, the recipient of that intelligence, whether it's a president or a squad leader, doesn't matter. So I talk about that uh, a bit. Uh, is intelligence ethical? Uh, I talk about the uh, mixed messages that I got, the intelligence community got, at least during my six and a half years at DNI, from the American public about just how intrusive you want the American public wants its intelligence community and law enforcement community, which are often partners, how intrusive the American public is willing to have the intelligence community and uh, law enforcement communities be. And I got very mixed messages from the American public about that. Invariably, when some untoward incident happened in the United States, Boston Marathon, case in point, or the Fort Hood shooting, and, of course, you have the inevitable investigations, the post-event critiques afterwards. And I remember distinctly getting beat up on the Hill about, well, you should have been more intrusive. You should have been reading Major Hassan's emails. Or we should have been surveilling the Sarnia brothers in Boston. Yet, after Snowden, of course, there was great revulsion to the notion that the intelligence community was quote, doing domestic surveillance, which is uh, hyperbole. So those are some of the uh, themes that, you know, I discuss in the book. Oh, fantastic. We're looking forward to it. Um, just as, as you're looking back to your career, you're giving a, speak about, a speech about 50 years of intelligence. Do you have recommendations for our students here who will become the next generation? They are leaders now, but will become the next generation of senior leaders. Any well, thoughts to I guide them? The, the message for... Uh, you know, for, uh, let me first address military intelligence officers that uh, I considered uh, my time uh, as a, a part of a noble, noble profession. Uh, you know, some people might take issue with that. Uh, my dad was an Army intelligence officer in World War II, signal intelligence for 28 years. And, uh, you know, I, a lot of that, I think, uh, I got that from him, that this was a noble profession to you know, serve the country, be part of something bigger than yourself. And if you're not an intelligence officer, if you're a, an operator, combat arms officer, commander, whatever, uh, to um, educate yourself and uh, depend on uh, intelligence. Uh, demand, be demanding, but be fair, understanding what 
understand what intelligence can and can't do for you. But, and, I, and my observation is in the, the Army, given, again, given this institutional commitment where intelligence is, is part of uh, the fundamental doctrine in the Army, airland battle, whatever it was, uh, intelligence is requisite to the successful conduct of operations. And I think most uh, combat arms officers that I had any dealings with uh, understood that. Yeah, sure, they get frustrated with intelligence and doesn't give them the answer they want and, and all that, but that doesn't uh, mean to uh, treat it as a leper colony. Uh, intelligence is very important and it can serve you when you uh, figure out uh, how to use it. Thank you. Uh, I think that'll wrap us up today. Um, thank you so much for joining us here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for having me. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.